0: Please open your Bibles with me to our passage for this morning. In Genesis chapter 2, we're reading from verses 4 through 17. Genesis 2 verses 4 through 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah. Where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die." This is the word of the Lord.
1: One of the very first seminars that I was required to take when I entered into a doctoral program was a seminar on research and writing, and one of the first sections in there was how to read a book for all it's worth. And and as we dug into thinking about the best way to read a book, and I'm not talking about a, a fiction book, but the best way to read a book, we were exhorted to start at the end, because a really good writer will often bring home the conclusions at the end, and and really drive the points that he's been trying to make throughout, really drive them home, and that was something that really stuck with me, something that's been helpful. Well. Given that the Bible, God's holy and inspired word, is extremely well written, and given that it is one grand narrative made up of 66 books by some 40 different authors in three different languages over a period of about 1,500 years, and yet it all sings the same song, given that it all tells one grand narrative, given that all that is true, I think it's helpful as we're starting the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to look at the book of Revelation to get a sense of where this grand narrative is heading. When we do this, if we were to jump to Revelation 21 through 22, we would see that the biblical story ends with new creation. More specifically, we could say it ends in a temple city that is garden-like, Or we could just say that it ends in a garden temple. And I'm going to unpack that more as we go, but this is very helpful for us because as we dig into Genesis chapter 2, one thing that is very important for us to see is that the biblical narrative not only ends in a garden temple, but it also begins in a garden temple. If you're not already there, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. I want to begin by pointing out that liberal scholars will often argue that Genesis 2 is a second creation account inserted by the author, or they would actually say inserted by the editors, and that it actually contradicts the first creation account. Thus, one of my first aims this morning is to demonstrate that it's simply not true. What's happening here is very common in ancient Near Eastern literature, and quite frankly, it's not uncommon in good writing today. What's going on is after the introduction, where the writer introduces the big picture here, the creation of everything, the writer then zooms in on the main focus of the big picture, which in this case is the creation of man, the sixth day of creation. I I told you back when we covered Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 that the chapter division there That chapter 2 was a poor one as chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 is clearly the conclusion of chapter 1. That's that's evident when you read through it. The writer gives you the six days of creation and shows that he rests on the seventh day. It's all the more clear when you hit verse 4 in light of the rest of the book because the writer introduces the next section with the Hebrew Toledoth. These are the generations of, or some translations, this is the account of. See, after Genesis 1, where you've got your overarching intro, there are 11 of these, these are the generations of, which breaks Genesis up into 10 sections. And each one of these, with the exception of the first, starts with a person. So you have statements like, these are the generations of Adam, these are the generations of Abraham. And the point of each is not the person mentioned, but the one that's going to come through that line. Here in chapter 2, given that we're at the very beginning, it makes perfect sense that Moses says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth because there weren't any people yet. What's more, we see another transition in the narrative in that while the name Elohim was used for God throughout the whole of Genesis chapter 1, here for the first time in the Bible we see God referred to as Yahweh, which is very fitting for what's about to happen See, the word Elohim, translated as God in chapter 1, is appropriate for the portrayal of God as the sovereign creator over the whole universe, which was the point of chapter 1. On the other hand, Yahweh, the name God reveals to Moses in Exodus 3, is the name commonly associated with covenant relationship between God and His people. And again, this is very fitting here because what we find in Genesis 2 is not a second creation narrative per se, but a zooming in on the sixth day of creation where God creates man and thus as Moses wants to emphasize this personal relationship between God and man, he refers to God as Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. So in Genesis 1, man is put forth as the highest of all created beings, created in God's own image created to serve as God's vice regents on the earth, to have dominion over all of His creation and commissioned to spread His image across the whole world. In chapter 2, the narrative slows down, again, in order to zoom in on, to elaborate on this most important day of creation. More specifically, this most important part of creation, that is the creation of man and God's relationship with man that is indeed the part of creation that the rest of the Bible will go on and focus. And so we start a new section. He begins by describing the land before the creation of man. In verses 5 through 6 we read, there was no bush of the field in the land and no small plant of the field. And some struggle here because they think that since we're dealing with plant life again, that Moses has somehow lost his way and is going back to day three and somehow reordering the creation narrative of chapter one. But that is not what's going on. His point is to show the earth's condition before man was placed in the garden to cultivate it. And the context makes this clear. Uh, There was no bush of the field in the land and no small plant of the field because two things. One... God had not yet caused it to rain. Now, that doesn't mean it won't rain until the flood. It just means that it hasn't rained at that point. And two, there was no man to work the ground. So, you see, these certain types of plants that are, that are different from what you have in Genesis 1 were not yet created because God had not yet created man. M- Moses, is, Moses is carefully setting the stage for, for, for where this narrative is going. Here it's helpful to see that the two types of plants mentioned in verse 5 are picked up on in Genesis three eighteen. In 2, 5, the bush of the field usually describes a desert thorn that has, or desert shrub that has thorns. And the small plant of the field describes the plants that produce grains for food, but they have to be cultivated by man. So, you come to Genesis 3, 18, after sin enters into the world, and you see that as a part of the curse, God says, thorns and thistles, which are related to the bush of the field, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants, same word as small plant of the field, you shall eat the plants of the field, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. I find Ken Matthews helpful here in his commentary. He says, quote, When viewed this way, we find the shrub and plant of 2-5 are not the same as the vegetation of 1, verses 11 through 12. Plant of the field describes the diet of man, which he eats only after the sweat of his labor, after his garden sin, whereas seed-bearing plants, as found in chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, were provided by God for human and animal consumption. These plants reproduce themselves by seed alone, but plant spoken of in two five requires human cultivation to produce grains necessary for edible food, for it is by such cultivation that fallen man... Will eat, end quote. So, these verses are describing life before the creation of man. They're, they're, they're setting the table, as it were, for where the narrative is going, and these particular plants were not yet around. You know, what's more, we've already seen that it hasn't yet rained on the land. Now, the ESV says in verse 6 that a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. And I want to point out that if you're reading an ESV, you've got a little footnote there, several of the other translations as well, noting that the word mist can also be taken as spring, which is the way most of your commentators take it. To me, it makes the most sense here, given that you've got this river that will become four rivers, mentioned in verses 10 through 14, that water the whole garden. And thus what we have is this beautiful picture of the beauty of God's creation Before the fall, you've got this well-watered, luxurious place, this beautiful garden with an uninterrupted, spring-fed cycle of water with a slight hint of where the narrative's going, given the mention of the plants that would be tended by the sweat of man's brow, which all leads to verse 7, the description of man's creation. Look back at the text. Here we see Moses tell us that it's Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God, who does the creating, pointing to the covenant relationship between God and man. Here we're told that the Lord God personally formed the man from the dust of the ground. And this is yet another place, by the way, where there's, there's no possible way to read any form or fashion of theistic evolution into this narrative. There's no hint here that God sort of created matter, and by random chance and mutation, man just somehow comes about. No, no, no. You, you cannot read the text that way. There's a closeness between God and his creation. God fashions man very purposefully. The picture is a skilled potter making his grand creation. What's more, while we see the close relationship between God and man, we are also reminded that we are not his equal. For the closeness between man and the ground is also shown. In the original Hebrew, you have a play on words here. In the original, man is Adam. The ground is Adamah. And thus, Adam comes from Adama, paving the way for the statement in Genesis 3, after the fall, when God says, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, so, so there's a closeness that the inspired writer is trying to show us between God and, and, and man, and yet there's also a clear distinction, right? No doubt he wants us to see this special relationship between God and the pinnacle of His creation. But He also wants to make it clear we are not God or little gods. And both this distinction and the special relationship are highlighted even more when we see how God animates this one made in His own image. The picture we see here, again, is that of God purposefully forming man. Like a potter shapes the clay, and then he does something amazing, something so special. He reaches down, if you will, and blows a puff of divine air into his nostrils, and the man becomes a living being. And while chapter 1 tells us the animals are also living creatures, there's a vital distinction between man and the animals here. In Genesis 1, and again in verse 19 of Genesis 2, the source of the animals is the ground. And the animals are simply said to come forth from it in a moment. But man, Adam, on the other hand, also comes from the ground, but is fashioned by God. As a potter fashions his clay, and we see that the fountain of life for the man is the very breath of his creator. So while humans and animals share the common gift of life, the special relationship between man and God is clearly seen not only in the fact that Genesis has already told us that we're made in God's own image to serve as God's vice regents on the earth, but also in the fact that God animates the pinnacle of his creation with his own breath. The narrative of this glorious relationship between God and man is not finished. For as we proceed on, we see that God forms man out of the dust, gives him the breath of life, And then it's as though he places his special creation in his special place, a place of his extravagant provision, a place where God would have fellowship with man, which is indeed the most extravagant part of his provision. Here we come to the Garden of Eden. And this garden, as I alluded to earlier, seen through the lens of whole Bible theology, should be seen as a garden temple that will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heaven and new earth, which will be the holy of holies among men. And I'll try to point out some indicators as we go. First, we see God's provision of a glorious place as we see that this garden temple is a well-watered garden, symbolizing the fact that it is full of life. In verse 10, we see that a river flows out of the Garden of Eden, almost certainly bubbling up from the subterranean spring spoken of in verse 6, and then four other rivers go about irrigating all of the land. This is important because we also see this idea of a river flowing from God's temple as you continue on in the biblical narrative when you come to Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel's looking ahead to another temple, a temple that's not yet come. And this temple has water issuing from below the threshold, indeed, a river. Ezekiel describes the water as flowing down from the temple, giving life to everything in its path, including the trees, which he says, whose leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. And then this river flowing from God's temple is again picked up on when we come to Revelation 22, where we see the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And there on either side, The tree of life that we haven't even commented on yet, but that's from Genesis 2, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. And these parallels are important, and there's more. Not only does this garden temple have a river flowing from it, but we also see an extravagant banquet God has prepared for his people. Consider verse 9 where we read that God gave man every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Commenting on this, one commentator says, all kinds, pleasing and good, all evidence, the extravagance the garden offered. Any charge that God is stingy is unfounded. But the serpent successfully fooled his audience, end quote. Everything they wanted or needed was right there. Every good tree was there, pleasing to the sight, good for food. Adam and Eve and their progeny would have never wanted for anything. They were invited to feast at God's lavish banquet every single day. Of course, this idea of God's lavish banquet is picked up on As the Bible starts to look ahead to the fulfillment of the garden temple. In Luke 22, verse 28 to 30, Jesus tells his disciples, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Fast forward right to the end, and you see the recapitulation of the abundant banquet for all eternity. In Revelation 19, we read, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. And as you read on, the angel says, write this. are those invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In God's original garden temple, you find a well-watered paradise with everything the first couple could have ever imagined needing, but God is not done. In verses 11 to 12, we're told that there was gold in the land, and the gold in the land was good, and that delium and onyx stone were there. Uh, Again, let me quote from Matthews. I think he's helpful. He says, quote, Although the location remains elusive for the modern cartographer, the point of the description is clear for the reader. The habitat God has provided is bountiful and beautiful, It has rich resource of life-giving water and is adorned with precious metals and jewels. The good gold echoes the good creation of chapter 1 and testifies to God's excelling provision for the human couple. Again, I want to point out, as I'm calling this a garden temple, pointing to future temples and to the ultimate temple, But gold was a vital part of the tabernacle and the temple's furnishings, and the onyx stone was essential to the high priest's garments, especially the ephod, where the names of the twelve tribes were inscribed. See, this whole account of the garden, the garden temple, is loaded with imagery of the later temple culminating in God dwelling with man in the new heavens and new earth. But we're not done yet, for we still need to consider man's role. In the Garden Temple. First, it's clear that man is to enjoy the garden. If you look at verse 15, we read that God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. The word translated put here in verse 15 is literally caused to rest. This idea of rest we discussed last week, and it's obviously important biblically. It has the imagery of a king resting from his enemies. Thus, God prepares the garden for man's safety where he can enjoy God's presence, where he can rest in God. What's more, we've already alluded to the fact that man was to partake of every tree in the garden, every tree that is except the no- tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll come to in a bit. It's also important that we see that man was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. And this is closely tied to the commission of Genesis 1, where the first man and woman were to serve as God's vice regents in the land, having dominion over the land, spreading his image across the earth. Here then, as part of that commission, man is to work and keep the garden. But We should note here that work is not a result of the fall. Sometimes described that way, but that's just wrong. When we look at the results of the fall, we see that work becomes much more difficult. As a result of the fall, everything becomes hard, often painful, but here, man is called to work the garden before the fall. God created the world and everything in it, and man to work it, to subdue it, to have dominion over it. The word for work is common word for tilling the soil, basic labor, sometimes used for worship. See, before the fall, productive work was all part of God's good plan for his people. What's more, man's not only called to work the garden, He's also called to keep it. And this word keep is often used later in the biblical narrative for the duties of the Levites in keeping or guarding the tabernacle and then later the temple. In fact, these two words, work and keep, taken together as they are here, is found elsewhere in the Pentateuch only in the context of the duties of the Levites keeping guarding the tabernacle or temple in those texts we see that the levites were to work the tabernacle they were to to guard the tabernacle from anything unclean and so again we see moses is putting forth the garden it's a garden temple in that it's god's special place where he uniquely would dwell with his people now we've yet to talk about the two important trees in the garden we need to do that I'm going to do it quickly and elaborate on it more when we come to chapter 3. In the middle of the garden temple, you've got the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And very little is said about the trees here in chapter 2, except that they're there. And thus, to have a basic understanding of them, you really have to fast forward to chapter 3 and and, and beyond. And so I'll offer a short description of each here and elaborate a little bit more when we come to chapter 3. First, the tree of life. The name itself would indicate that this tree is the source of life in the garden. And saying in that way in no way negates that God is ultimately the giver of life, right? But following the narrative, it would seem that God has chosen here to use the tree in this way. Thus, partaking of this tree results in continued life. The barring of somebody from this tree results in death, as you see at the end of Genesis 3, and then picked up on in Revelation. Consider Revelation 2.7, where Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And of course, we see this tree in the new heavens and new earth in Revelation 22. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a little bit more difficult, and again, we'll elaborate a little more in two weeks. But I think it's best to say that this tree bestowed divine wisdom. But, but, but if you think about it, throughout the wisdom literature, we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom. And God told Adam and Eve not to eat of this particular tree. Thus, they could learn wisdom, true wisdom, through obedience if they stayed obedient and steered clear of that tree. But to partake of that tree was to seek wisdom without reference to God. To partake of the tree was an act of moral autonomy, deciding what was right without listening to what God had revealed, which is precisely what Adam and Eve will do in chapter 3. We know the story, right? God placed them in his perfect garden temple where they could have perfect fellowship with their creator. And we know that Adam and Eve ultimately failed. They did not work and guard the garden. Instead of guarding God's garden temple by crushing the head of the serpent, they just allowed him to come right in. Instead of serving as temple guards, they listened to the serpent. They sought moral autonomy. They sought wisdom apart from God, and as a result, they were judged. They were, they were driven away from the garden temple, never to partake again of the tree of life, and thus they would die. And yet we also know that's not the end of the story. This book is filled with the amazing grace of God, for we see that God had a rescue mission in place. And as God created man to dwell in his presence... Allow me to quickly and in a way that's a little overly simplistic, but let me sketch in how we get there. I've been saying all along that the Garden of Eden is depicted here by Moses as a garden temple, God's perfect place where he would dwell with his people. This is seen in a number of ways Eden, the garden, right? The garden temple. Then Moses' tabernacle. Then Solomon's temple were all entered from the east. All guarded by cherubim. Haven't even mentioned this one. We see the cherubim guard the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve are driven out of the garden. We see two statues of two cherubim in the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies guarding the place where God would meet with his people. Uh, Additionally, in Solomon's temple, we see reliefs of carved cherubim on the inner walls of the holy place and on its doors, seemingly symbolizing this garden temple. The decor of the temple itself was garden-like with its golden palm trees and flowers and precious stones. And many believe that the lampstand itself was to symbolize the tree of life. We've already mentioned that Adam and Eve were to work and guard the garden temple. Just as the Levites were to work and guard the tabernacle and temple that were garden-like. We see the gold and the onyx mentioned is important in both. And most importantly, we see that these places were places where God would uniquely meet with his people. So the garden of Genesis is put forth as a garden temple. The unique place God would meet with His people, and Adam and Eve fail to work and guard the garden temple, and they're driven away. But in God's grace, we see that the narr- we see this narrative move on through. Little sanctuaries in Genesis, what Greg Beal calls impermanent miniature forms of sanctuaries. Have some listed in your outline. And time precludes discussing them, but you can consider them precursors to the tabernacle. Then you get to the book of Exodus. And perhaps some of you have wondered why such a fast-moving, exciting narrative ah, comes to a screeching halt, right? To describe in somewhat painful detail. And you know what I'm talking about if you're in your Bible reading plan and you get there. In somewhat painful detail to describe the tabernacle and all the parts of the tabernacle, God's unique place to meet with his people that is, oh yeah, just so happens to be garden-like. Tedious as it seems, it is, as T.D. Alexander says, quote, a major advance forward in the biblical meta-story, for now God resides permanently with one nation, end quote. Later under King Solomon, you get to another advancement in this, in this theme, right, in that there's now a permanent structure built, Solomon's temple, and again, it's garden-like. Of course, after Solomon, you've, you've got this series of kings that rebel and, and, and lead the people to do the same, and so a major reversal occurs in the narrative. In 586 BC, the Babylonians destroy the temple, and we see a, a, a recapitulation of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden, just like Israel. Or the the recapitulation where you see Israel driven out of the promised land, taken into captivity. Then they're brought back in 538 B.C. under King Cyrus. The rebuilding of the second temple, which is completed in 516 under the leadership of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And it's then at the coming of the Lord Jesus where you see the next significant development in this biblical theme. In the Gospel of John, we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, we're told, the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that Word is literally tabernacled, templed among us. God became flesh and tabernacled among us. See, the incarnation of Jesus is a, is a watershed moment And this idea of God's temple, this idea of God dwelling on earth, God dwelling with his people, and Jesus clearly understood this. This is precisely why in John chapter 2, when questioned by the Jewish leaders, "Who, who gives you the authority for doing these things, Jesus responds, tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll raise it up again. Jesus was crystal clear. He was the replacement of the temple. We're not waiting for another temple to be built. In the beginning, the garden temple was God's unique place where he met with his people after the fall, the tabernacle. Later, the temple became the unique place where God would meet with his people. And then at Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus becomes the unique place God meets with his people. And if you want to have a relationship with God, it is only through believing in Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for sinners like you and me. And let me just pause there because if you're here this morning and you want to be forgiven of your sins because we're all sinners, you want to be forgiven of your sins, you, you want judgment removed from you, placed on Christ instead of you, you want fellowship with God we were created to have restored, then friend, Jesus is your only hope just like he's my only hope, all of our only hope, and I would hold him out to you today to believe in Christ. Look to Jesus. Believe in him. We're almost home, but not quite, because the coming of Jesus brings about a major shift in the story, but we're still not to the consummation, right? For if we continue along, we know that there's another key moment at the day of Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, comes to dwell With? Within his people. And thus the church quickly made up of Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Now the church becomes the new temple of God. The church gathered like we're doing this morning represents now the temple of God. For God is with us through his spirit. And tying this back to Genesis 1.28 as the church expands throughout the earth. We see the temple of God extended as Adam and Eve were supposed to do. Of course, if you know your Bible history, you know that in AD 70, right, the Romans destroyed the second temple. But that doesn't matter because according to the biblical narrative, as Peter says, speaking of the church in 1 Peter 2, he says, as you come to him, listen to this language, as you come to him, a living stone Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. That's temple language. Being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, now the church gathered is the temple of God. And brothers and sisters, it will be this way. Until Jesus comes again and, and and brings about that final step of God's redemption, when God will recreate the world and the new heaven and new earth, and we will dwell for all eternity in the new creation, which in the book of Revelation, you guessed it, is a garden like temple. Now, some of you know Revelation, you might say, Wait a minute, where does it say it's a temple? doesn't say there's a new temple. In fact, it says there's no temple. It says God was the temple. Well, consider this. I know time's short, so we won't turn over and do a deep dive into Revelation 21 through 22. But if we had time, we would see that an angel takes the Apostle John on a little tour of the new heaven and new earth. And much like what happens at the end of Ezekiel, he asks him to break out the measuring stick. Right? Similar to Ezekiel, measurements are taken, and you might be thinking, why all the measurements? Why, why does this matter, right? You might have glossed over those. In, in Revelation, when the city measured, you see that it's a most peculiar city. It's, its length is the same as its width and the same as its height. It's a cube. Sort of bizarre, right? The new heaven and new earth, the new Jerusalem is depicted as an ever-loving cube. Now, that would mean nothing except, do you know where the only other cube is in the entire Bible? It's the Holy of Holies. Don't, Don't miss this. I told you at the very beginning of the sermon that the Bible begins and ends in a garden temple. Here the new heaven and new earth is depicted as the Holy of Holies. No, there won't be a temple structure there because the whole point of the temple is God dwelling with his people. Thus, we will dwell for all eternity in the very presence of God, in the Holy of Holies, if you will, in the recreation of the Garden of Eden, where the river, the water of life, flows from the throne of God and the Lamb and the tree of life resides on either side. And I could go on and on here, but let's just pause for a bit and put some shoe leather on this. Why does this matter? You might be thinking, okay, all right, you know, sort of zoning out parts of the sermon. See a few cool connections, biblical theology, blah, blah, blah. How does that help me on Wednesday afternoon that the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a garden? Why should I care? Other than perhaps it might help me win a trivia game, right? And I get it. Okay, I'm a bit of a biblical nerd, and I know some of these things are tedious. (laughs) But you should care. And I should care. Because this is the best news I could possibly deliver to you this morning, or any other morning for that matter. What this means, think about it, the Bible starts there and ends there. What this means, and in fact the rest of the Bible bears this out, is that we were created for eternity. Whether we get 90 years or 9 years, we were created to live forever in God's special place with Him. And at that point in salvation history will be the new heaven and new earth, God's garden temple. And what that means is that we're not simply created for 50, 60, 80 years, however long you might get. And by the way, in no way am I downplaying those years. They're very important. Our lives absolutely matter. Make the most of them. I'm not downplaying that at all, but it is a point of perspective. If, say, you're fortunate enough to go 80, but that's all you have, I guarantee you it radically changes how you think about today and tomorrow. You may as well get it all now. Go get it. Get it, get it good. It's all you got. If, however, we were created to dwell with God for 100 trillion years, and that's just the warm-up, that too radically changes how we live. If if my again we'll call it 80 years of life is the smallest little dot on the spectrum of eternity, then it would be foolish. Indeed, it would be stupid, a fool's errand, to live in the here and now, like this is it. <laughs> No, brothers and sisters, we want to live today like we're going home tomorrow. We want to live right now with a constant gaze toward our eternal home, this glorious garden temple that we get to dwell with God forever. I'm out of time. Let me end with this. We need to get hold of eternity now. It is a game changer in how we think about today We need to lay hold of this and live each and every day in light of it. This is the north star for the Christian. Maybe life's going really well for you. Praise God, that's great, but it ain't it. It's not it. And you want to keep focus. Maybe things are bad. Maybe things are hard. You might be walking through the hardest season of your entire life. Hold on tight. This is a slip on our way to eternity and so brothers and sisters let this be an encouragement to you our God wants us to see from the very beginning of the Bible he's got a big glorious amazing plan and he wants to be with us for all eternity and he's got a place waiting for us and we want to look to him look to that great glorious day and live today in light of that reality. Let's pray. Father. I pray that your word. Would continue to reorient. Our thinking. Oh God I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters. That your word would cause us to. Look to Jesus. Jesus look to spending eternity with him. Oh, Lord, we need you. We thank you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.